This sort of thing never happens in Austin. This is a safe neighborhood. Words that would be echoed through the community after the crime that changed Austin, Texas forever. Welcome to the first episode of Crime Glasses, your true crime book club podcast. Every month, we are going to be picking a new true crime book to read and using it as a guide to talk about the cases that shocked us, the underlying issues, and the moments that had us closing the book desperate for a breather. I'm your host, Karina Michelle, and I'm so excited for you to listen to the podcast. Also a little bit anxious, but it's okay. Um, If you could do me a huge favor and just let me know that you're listening by screenshotting this episode, posting it on your Instagram stories, and tagging me at Crime Glasses Podcast. I cannot wait for you to listen to this and talk to you about it. So here is the first episode of Crime Glasses. This month, we are going to be talking about the Austin Ewer shop murders using the book Who Killed These Girls by Beverly Laurie. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit about the author Beverly Laurie. She was born in Memphis and she grew up in Mississippi, but she's now residing in Austin, Texas. I believe that one of the reasons that Laurie was so attached to the yogurt shop murders is because her son Peter was sadly killed in a hit-and-run accident that, much like yogurt shop, remains unsolved. She is the author of six novels and four previous works of nonfiction. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Mississippi Review, and many other publications. She has received many awards for her writing, and this month, we are going to be deep diving into her true crime novel, Who Killed These Girls? The Fire. On December 6, 1991, at 11.48 p.m., an APD rookie named Troy Gay called the Austin Fire Department after noticing smoke coming from behind the trees that lined Shoal Creek. The rookie cop gave the incorrect address, but this incident would also be called in by a different officer. Dennis Smith. The address he gave was the strip mall at the 2900 block of Wes Anderson Lane. They drove to the scene and noticed that the fire was consuming the local I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop. By this point, the shop's windows and the glass panes were completely black and smoke was pouring in from the store's neighboring businesses. The fire department figured that it was a kitchen appliance that was left on. The workers must have closed shop and gone home without even noticing. The strip mall was quiet. Parked outside were a 1991 dark blue Chevy S10 and a 1971 bright green VW Carmen Ghia. But no one was around. Station 8 of the Austin Fire Department responded. René Hector Garza and David DeVoe were the two specialists that would go in and put out the fire. Their goal was simple. Make entry, find the fire, and put it out with the water and hoses. Garza pulled the front door and was unable to open it. He ended up using a crowbar to pop it open. Once inside, the specialists assessed that the hottest flames were coming from the south wall of the storage room. They assumed this is where they would find the stove that caused the fire. But the detail they didn't know was that Bryce Foods, the owners of the yogurt shop franchise, were very strict with the rules on how to run the shop. But their business plan was simple. No waitresses, no cooking, therefore no stoves. 
Garza took a step into the darkness, but was held back by DeVoe. Due to the gear and smoke, they could mainly communicate with each other through signals. DeVoe pointed to the floor and yelled, Is that a foot? As they backed up, taking in the scene, they realized there was a body. Sergeant John Jones. In 1991, Austin was a safe city. So much so that on this night, there was only one homicide cop on the street, Sergeant John Jones Jr. The night of December 6, 1991 was not a routine night for Sergeant Jones. Two people were riding along with him, a reporter and a videographer from KTBC-TV. They were doing a series on homicides in Texas. The reporter kept repeating the idea that nothing ever happens in Austin, that they were lucky to be heading in Houston the next day because they would for sure get a story there. However, something unexpected happened. A call came in that would mark December 6 as the day Austin, Texas lost its innocence. Sergeant Jones responded to a dispatch call. Two fatalities, suspected arson, suspected homicide. Looks like gunshot wounds. The dispatcher would give the address to the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop. Another call came in for Jones. They found another body. The phone rang again. Jonesy, make that four. To quote one of the most horrific lines from the book, girls, kids, bound, gagged, naked, stacked, burned to the bone. When Sergeant Jones arrived at the scene, he crossed over the yellow tape, making his way through the wide-open steel doors to the storage room at the yogurt shop. When he stepped inside, he recalls puddles of water all over the place. The bodies were still smoldering. He says, It was hot. It was smoky. And I was by myself. The girls. The Harbison sisters. In an article for the Washington Post written by David Moranis titled, Parent, Child, and Death's Dominion, which I will be referencing a lot, I'll leave it in the show notes, but it's hauntingly yet beautifully written and there's nothing that I could even try to come up with that will ever compare. In this article, Barbara recalls that when she gave birth to Sarah, she could not wait to get home and see her two-year-old daughter, Jennifer. She says that she bought her a jewel so she wouldn't feel left out with the new baby. As soon as Jennifer saw infant Sarah, she was just excited that her mom brought her home a baby. And they were inseparable ever since. In 1979, 12 years before the gruesome murders, Barbara divorced the girl's father, Mike, and decided to move from the countryside of New Boston to Austin. She moved to Austin with the hopes that her daughters would have adventures in the big city life, away from the country. The girls were very close to their mom. They were almost like sisters. Barbara would go on to marry Frank Cerucci, nicknamed Chip, an Italian Catholic who worked at Dell Computers. The girls would often joke, does that mean we're Italian now? Little did she know that her daughters would become natural cowgirls. Jennifer and Sarah loved all things boots, jeans, and George Strait. They both joined the local chapter of the Future Farmers of America, FFA. In 1991, they were raising lambs to showcase in the livestock spring competition. They would visit the ag farm twice a day to take care of the stock and clean out the stalls. As close as Jennifer and Sarah were, they were completely different. 17-year-old Sarah was a senior in Sydney Lanier High School in 1991. She started working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop in July. Her friend Eliza Thomas got her the job as a way to help her father Mike pay for her new 1991 dark blue Chevy. He had one condition. You have to drive your sister wherever she needs to go. 
The girl's mother, Barbara, tried to convince her many times to not work during her senior year, to just enjoy it. The shifts were usually late on weekends and the pay was minimum wage, but Jennifer really wanted to help out. Jennifer was a relay runner on the varsity track team. She was dating a classmate named Sammy, and they made plans to attend the same college after graduation and eventually get married. To quote from the book, Jennifer operated on a tight schedule. To keep up, she wore a Timex wristwatch. She was very organized and would always plan ahead. 15-year-old Sarah was a sophomore at Lanier. She played volleyball and basketball, and her parents joked that her claim to fame was not scoring, but that she fouled out of every game. She was dating a senior classmate and would proudly wear his senior ring. She was described by her friends as friendly, a natural leader, and she loved food. Eliza Thomas Eliza Thomas was also a senior at Lanier High School and got Jennifer the job at the ICBY. She started working there in January to supplement another job where she was taking a nine-year-old boy to his swimming lessons twice a week. According to her loved ones, her car was her pride and joy, a bright green 1971 VW Carmen Ghia, and most of her paycheck went into maintaining it. Her birthstone was emerald, so she felt it was just meant to be. She was mechanically inclined, so she would keep up with repairs on the car. And for Christmas, she only asked for one thing, car parts. Eliza shared with a coworker that she was working to help her mom financially. Her mother, Maria, was currently working as an artist assistant, but would constantly switch jobs. Eliza was also active in the FFA, and for the event, she was raising a pig named Stony. She was hoping that he would win, but unfortunately he was sick, and on that morning, she woke up early to care for him. She asked Maria to accompany her to the ag farm to help her give Stony a shot. Her mom, with little to no passion for agrarian life, was secretly hoping that Eliza wouldn't need her help. Lucky for Maria, a fellow member of the FFA would help Eliza with Stony. Still, her mother decided to contribute by cleaning out the pen. According to the book, Maria remembers Eliza as being special. She read constantly and had a gift for language. She could have become a writer. Eliza's father, James, disagreed. Eliza would grow up to follow her passion for animals. Eliza said that she wanted to attend Texas A&M and become a vet, and he believed her. James and Maria divorced when Eliza was seven. They would share custody until Eliza turned 14, and then they gave her the choice of which parent she wanted to live with. For a while, Eliza and her 13-year-old sister, Sonora, were living with her father and his new wife, Norma. But in July of 1991, Eliza decided to move in with her mom. James lived close to the ICBY, and it was not uncommon for Sonora to ride her bike over to bring things that Eliza had forgotten, or just to visit. Maria remembers in an interview with KVUE that Eliza loved lipsticks. She had tons and tons more. She had the most beautiful mouth, so I would buy her lots of lipsticks, and she would buy lots of lipsticks. She was very particular about her complexion, washing her face at least three times a day. Sonora remembers her sister as being popular, friendly, and chatty. Amy Ayers 13-year-old Amy Ayers attended Burnett Middle School and would rarely get to see her best friend Sarah. Amy's parents Pamela and Bob are described in the book as quiet, reserved, and religious. Bob Ayers recalls Amy as being a private girl who kept to herself. She was a cowgirl at heart and was a huge fan of George Strait. 
She would wear a cowboy hat to school and could ride horses for hours without ever getting tired. She received special permission to join the FFA as a junior member. She loved animals. She started riding horses at the age of three and had aspirations of becoming a veterinarian. She had a brother named Sean and they had two pigs together. Amy would sometimes leash one of the pigs and take them out for a walk. Amy was Sarah's best friend, but they did not spend as much time together as they would have liked because Amy was still in middle school. But next year, everything would be different because Amy would be attending Sarah's high school. They were already talking about all the people that Sarah would introduce Amy to and all the memories they would be able to share together. December 6, 1991. December 6, 1991 landed on a Friday. The evening was busy for 17-year-old Jennifer. Her boyfriend Sammy missed school that day to attend his grandfather's funeral, and she wanted to spend time with him. She then had to go over to a friend's house to pick up her wallet, and after making a pit stop at her school to pick up forms that she had to fill out in order to run for queen of her local FFA chapter. She had to be home by 7 to start getting ready for her shift at the ICBY. At 4.30 p.m., Barbara arrived to find her 15-year-old daughter Sarah sitting on the sofa. Sarah told her mom that she would be going out that night and asked if her friend from FFA, Amy, could stay over. Barbara agreed and suggested that Jennifer could drop her and Amy off at the nearby North Cross Mall on her way to her shift at the yogurt shop. At around 6.30 p.m., Eliza Thomas is getting ready for her shift at the ICBY. Her mom, Maria, called her to check in, and Eliza gushed about her and Jennifer being nominated for FFA Queens. At around 7 p.m., Jennifer arrived home to get ready for her shift. Around this time, Eliza was clocking into the ICBY. She would remain tending the shop by herself for about an hour until Jennifer arrived. Eliza and Jennifer usually worked weekend night shifts, but Eliza would pick up the occasional weeknight shift. In fact, the day prior, she had to cover one of those shifts, and she was a bit annoyed because her ex-boyfriend kept prank calling the store. On December 6, when Eliza clocked in, she took the office key from the cash register's ledge and made her way into the storage area. The office was kept in the back. She would leave her car keys, jacket, purse, and a Texas Aggie backpack on a filing cabinet. She would lock the door behind her and return to the main serving area. At around 7.30 p.m., Jennifer and Sarah left the house to pick up Amy. The Ayers knew that the Harbison sisters looked very closely over Amy. Whenever they would pick them up, they promised that she would be safe. This would be the first time that Amy and Sarah would go to the mall alone. Jennifer dropped them off and agreed on a time that she would pick them up. Amy kissed her parents goodbye and told them that she loved them. She carried her Jiminy Cricket bag into Jennifer's car. She was wearing her brother's leather bomber jacket and a white belt with a heart-shaped buckle. A witness that went to school with Sarah will recall seeing the girls at the mall. However, he will state that Sarah was the one wearing the jacket, not Amy. Going alone to the mall for the first time. An out-of-the-norm detail that in the grand scheme of things could be unimportant, or the one fact that could change everything. At 8 p.m., Jennifer made it to the ICBY for her shift. It was common for workers to be by themselves for hours, a detail that would later raise flags with parents in the community. How could it be that these girls were left in the store alone? Newspapers would write that Sarah and Amy walked to the yogurt shop from the mall as it was so close in proximity. But Barbara disagreed. 
She says that she is certain that Jennifer left to pick them up. This would have been around 9 p.m. during her break. Once returning to the ICBY, Sarah and Amy would go to the pizza shop next door to buy dinner. They would take the pizza box back to the ICBY, take over a booth, and enjoy the slices while laughing and talking like best friends do. The neighboring businesses closed earlier than the yogurt shop. Party House was closed and the owner, George Barney, stayed in the back room that shared a wall with the shop to catch up on holiday workload. He would later tell police that he recalled hearing something on the roof at about 10.30 p.m., and he went outside to check the noise. According to the book, he wasn't sure if there really was a noise or not. For that matter, he did not remember if he heard anything to begin with. Mr. Gotti's pizzeria closed at 10 p.m., an hour before the yogurt shop. Later on in the night, George Barney will notice the smoke around the wall of his shop and will open the door in time to see a police car coming toward him. At around 9.30 p.m., Eliza was on the phone with Sonora, asking her to drop something off at the shop, but Sonora declined because she was home alone that night. Her dad and stepmother had stepped out and she was not allowed to leave until they returned. Maria walked into the shop to check in on Eliza and talked to Sonora on the phone for a bit. Afterward, Jennifer spoke to her boyfriend Sammy on the phone to make plans for breakfast the next morning. About half an hour later, security officer Daryl Croft walked into the store. He knew Maria and Eliza because they went to the same gym. He noticed a nervous young man wearing a green jacket that may have come from a military surplus store. He seemed to be in his early to mid-twenties, medium built, and around 5'10 to 6 foot tall. Due to his experience in law enforcement, the young man's behavior made Daryl keep a close eye on him. The young man finally spoke. Are you police? Security? What are you? Daryl said that he owned a security company, and Jennifer called the young man to order. Do you have 7-Up? No, Jennifer replied. We only have Sprite. He agreed to the drink, and Daryl noticed the young man walking through the back room. Daryl asked Eliza where he was going, and she said that he was going to the bathroom. But they weren't usually open to the public. But the young man really had to go, so she made an exception. It is important to note that according to the book, the ICBY actually had two bathrooms that were accessible to the public due to city regulations. Daryl tried stalling for time, talking to Maria, and hoping the young man would walk out. But he didn't. Unsettled by the situation, Daryl turned to leave forgetting all about the yogurts. Eliza called out to him, Daryl, your yogurt. Maria would leave a bit after Daryl. The next day, Daryl would leave to attend a football game in Houston and would miss the news of the horrific events that occurred hours after he left the yogurt shop. Upon hearing the report, he called the police and signed an official APD incident report. In 1999, he underwent voluntary hypnosis, but it was ineffective. According to the book, a homicide detective showed him a lineup of possible suspects, but he would not be able to identify any of them as the nervous young man. James Thomas, Eliza's father, walked into the ICBY immediately after Maria left. He checked in on Eliza and talked to her a bit about her FFA project. James recalls seeing two girls sitting in a booth sharing a pizza, but he'd never met Jennifer's little sister, so he could not identify them as Sarah and Amy. Neither James nor his wife recall seeing the nervous young man. Between 8.15 p.m. and 8.30 p.m., 51-year-old Lucilla Jones walked into the shop to get yogurt for her husband. He had undergone dental surgery and could only eat soft foods. 
Her attention was caught by two teenagers at a booth near the door of the store. One of them was sitting with his back toward the entrance and the other was standing behind the booth facing Lucilla. She could not tell if they had drinks or food on the table. She recalls wanting to ask the girls if they were okay, if they needed her to call someone. But when she saw their happy, calm demeanor, she shook the unnerving feeling off. She did notice that all their attention went to a small sack in front of them. One of the teenagers had his hand in the sack and was stirring it around. At the time, she said that the mystery item sounded like marbles. While testifying in 2001, she recalled the sound belonging to something else. Bullets. Okay, hi. Um, so I am going to pause on narrator me, and I want to talk to you as reader me. I'm not sure how often I'm going to do this in episodes. Just let me know how you feel about it. Uh, I feel like these episodes are going to change so much in the trajectory of the show. Um, and hopefully we can do that together. But I want to point out something really important in the book that I found really interesting, which is how the passing of time affects things like witness statements. You know, this is a great example of that. Lucella Jones, what in the moment your brain is trying to connect the pieces on a normal trip to the yogurt shop, the sound are marbles. But when you learn that the girls were shot to death, then all of a sudden it becomes bullets. And there's another example of the book um, where Maria Thomas originally, when she talked about visiting Eliza, she didn't mention the nervous man. But later on, that's a detail that she's going to add to her memories. And I, I just found it really fascinating. And Beverly Laurie does an incredible job at pointing this out through the book. It's not meant to diminish anyone's um, witness statements or anything like that. I think it's more of a way to point out the way that our brains piece together situations or piece together moments um, when something kind of seems normal, but how much things can change given to a bigger effect and how much our memories can change to fit the narrative of whatever it is that happened. I hope this made sense, but um, I just wanted to say that. Okay, back to the narrative. What's interesting about this encounter is another customer will report seeing the same teenagers, but it would be hours after Lucella, and no other customers shared this experience in the hours in between. Tim and Margaret walked into the ICBY at 10.42 p.m., 18 minutes before closing. According to the ICBY handbook, closing began 10 minutes before 11 p.m. This would be the last real sale made that night. Eliza was at the cash register and Jennifer was serving. Margaret noticed two young men sitting in one of the booths. They were leaning very closely toward each other. She found this odd and kept an eye out on them. They didn't notice Sarah and Amy, but she did notice how closely the young men seemed to be listening into Jennifer and Eliza's conversation. Tim suggested that they take the yogurts to go as Jennifer and Eliza started cleaning the store to close up shop. He didn't want to keep them. Margaret would also undergo hypnosis years later, but again, no avail. Lucilla would describe the young men as some kind of hippie. They seemed around five foot four to five foot seven. They did not have messy hair, but it really wasn't clean either. She said that they could possibly be Hispanic, but they could also be white with darker skin. Margaret could not really describe the two people sitting in the booth. Actually, she couldn't really tell if they were men. 
She recalls one of them being larger and wearing a khaki or beige-colored jacket. Bryce Foods was very strict with the way that they ran the shop. There were guidelines that needed to be followed for every routine in the store. According to co-workers, Eliza would follow the guidelines without skipping a step. At 10 before 11 p.m., they had to lock the front door from inside the store to start cleaning up, turn the open sign to closed, and leave the key in the lock, even if they were customers still in the store. The detail would spark suspicion between investigators that it's likely that the perpetrators were still in the shop when the girls began their routines. They would deposit the night's proceeds in a floor safe in the office. Once the closing was complete, they would remove the key and lock the door again from the outside. Then, they would slide the key under the door where the manager could retrieve it in the morning. Jennifer will start wiping down the counter and replacing napkin dispensers. To note, one of the most memorable details of the crime is the fact that one of the booth's napkin dispensers was not replaced and there were no chairs stacked on the table in an attempt to mop the floors. This could be because at the time, the booth was occupied by a customer, possibly the perpetrator. A scrunched up rag would be found on the counter and a stool was popped up in front of the yogurt machine. This would be helpful to investigators when putting together a timeline of events. They would verify how far the girls got in the closing process to figure out the time the murders likely happened. The key was still in the lock. To investigators, this is a sign that the perpetrators did not leave through the store's entrance. A receipt for a no sale will be found. The time reflected was 11.03 p.m. $50 will be missing from the cash register. This will spark the initial theory that the horrific crime was a robbery gone wrong, but investigators would disagree. Around this time, Kate, a teenager that snuck out of her house to participate as a cast member in the production of a Rocky Horror Picture Show, said that she noticed the lights were on in the yogurt shop, which was odd because by this time, it would have been closed and the lights would be off. She brushed it off and continued walking as she did not want to be late for rehearsal. By midnight, crime scene tape surrounded the ICBY. Police and fire personnel took over the parking lot. We will be going into detail of the crime scene and the investigation in the next episode, but I wanted to share an overview of what investigators were able to piece together from the crime scene. In the back room of the ICBY, there was an empty pizza box. Sarah and Amy must have been in the back room when the perpetrators attacked. They were most likely helping close the shop by doing the dishes. There would be piles of clothing found neatly stacked against the wall next to the steel back doors. From the items, investigators could tell the girls were ordered to strip. Each pile sits next to each other. Some items were missing as they were used to gag the girls. Sarah would slip off her Mickey Mouse watch, her wallet, and her boyfriend's class ring. She would keep on a ring and a gold cross necklace, both of which would melt. According to the book, Eliza will place her runover white free box alongside Jennifer's black pair. Jennifer will keep her Timex watch on, which will come to a stop at 11.48 p.m., the time where the fire's heat was the most intense. She would be burned worse than the other girls. Little Amy would also strip, but two of her clothing items would go missing, her brother's leather bomber jacket and a white belt. The heart-shaped buckle would remain with her belongings. Investigators believe the perpetrators took the items with them. According to the book, Jennifer would be found curled up on her side, lying close to the melted steel shelves against the south wall, wrists pressed against her spine, exploded cans of toppings, paint, and cleaning supplies on the floor around her. 
her face obliterated, a steel girder between her legs. Sarah will lay less than three feet from her sister, on her back, still gagged, wrist behind her, blackened legs spread and an ice scoop on the concrete floor between her thighs, its handle pointing to her pubic bone. The ice scoop would be the subject of many rumors, gruesome stories on how the perpetrators used the item to further victimize Sarah. Sergeant Jones disagreed. No telling how it got there, Jones told Lori. Probably fell off the shelf. Others believe that the scoop was moved due to the high intensity of the water hoses. Eliza will be lying spread eagle on top of Sarah, placed there by the killers, the skin of her legs split apart by the heat, bound, gagged, and like Jennifer, burnt bald and faceless. Amy was not lined up with the girls near the fire. She will be burned less severely. The register's door would be open. The till would be removed and was lying on the storage room floor. Amy would have coins scattered across her face. She would be shot twice. To investigators, this would be a sign that she tried to get away. The store's manager, Therese Reese Price, would be brought in to identify the girls. They had no faces, she recalls. She would check the schedule and see that Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas were set to work that night. This would be confirmed when police checked the car registration in the cars parked outside. In Jennifer's car, they would find Sarah and Jennifer's purses and Amy's Jiminy Cricket bag. To read from the book, the girls were naked and bound and had been shot point-blank in the back of the head, then burned, with at least two of the bodies being stacked up. Something awful has happened. After the girls were identified, it was time to tell the families. By this point, it had been four hours since the murders occurred. They would first tell James Thomas, as he lived the closest, and then they visited Maria next. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for them to wrap their minds around what happened. Just a few hours before, they were in the shop talking to their daughter. How could so much change in so little time? They would make their way to Barbara and Chips, and lastly, they would visit the Ayers. Hey, uh, this is reader Karina again. One of the things that you're going to notice about this book is a lot of it is from Jennifer and Sarah's perspective, or at least that's the narrative that we get the most because Barbara Cerucci really served as a spokesperson for the families. It was very difficult, obviously, for them to talk about this horrific event and Barbara was just kind of the backbone and the strength of the families and um, she was the one who was most outspoken. So that's why we have the most narrative about her. A little after 3.30 in the morning, Barbara Cerucci was awakened by a knock at the door. There was a running joke in the family that she never waited up, that she was not the standard worrying mom. She opened the door and saw a woman and two men standing there. They were from victim services. She knew that something was wrong. To quote from the Washington Post article, You know that horrible, sickening feeling you have? Barbara said. I went back to the bedroom feeling that way. I said, Skip, get up. Something's wrong with the girls. And I mean, I knew that. I knew that there was a problem. Then we came back, and the woman said that there was an accident, and there was a fire, and there were four bodies, and the girls were dead. And there wasn't enough of their little bodies to tell who was who. There are two memories that flooded Barbara. One was on May 14, 1979, when she was leaving her hometown to set roots in Austin with the girls. She remembers saying goodbye to her mom and promising her to take care of the girls. 
According to the article, the other memory was one that she tried to block. About a month earlier, she was driving home from work when she had an intense premonition that her girls were going to die. Victim services told Barbara that they could not leave until someone came to be with them. But Barbara didn't want to call anyone. To call would mean coming to terms with the reality that the girls were really gone. But if she could delay having the words leave her lips, maybe she would be awakened from this nightmare and the girls would be okay. How do you even say those words? What do you even say? Barbara's sister, Mary Kelly, arrived and the crisis team left and the time came to make the calls. Frank called Mike Harbison. According to the article, Frank dropped the phone in utter despair and cried. Am I saying this right? Am I right? The girls were murdered and burned? Mike dropped the phone and could not stop screaming. He couldn't get himself to repeat the words he heard to his wife, Debbie. Barbara called her mother next. My mother was the hardest to call, she said. To tell her that her babies were dead, she was in hysterics. I can't. I can't bear her tears. I can't bear her pain. She can't bear my pain, and I can't bear hers. Austin, Texas lost its innocence. Austin residents were coming to terms with the fact that their home was not as safe as they thought it was. This sparked a few classist comments from neighbors on how it was even possible that these girls were left without adult supervision, or worse, how these teenagers even had a job at all. One mother would say, we never thought our daughters would have a job. We felt very bad for the girls because they did. Barbara Sarucci took the role of a spokesperson for the family, and she replied to these comments by stating, it's what we do. We build things. It's what we do. According to the book, on December 12th, in a telephone survey, the Statesman newspaper asked its readers to answer two questions. Have you changed your habits or lifestyles? And have you or has someone you know in Austin have been a victim of a crime in the past two years? Gun shops reported that sales were up by 10 to 15 percent, especially among women. Residents began fearing being out late at night. If someone was so cold to brutally murder four young innocent girls, no one was safe. Other residents considered moving elsewhere. It's almost like a cliche in the true crime space, bursting the narrative that nothing bad ever happens in my town. Okay, so that was the first episode of Crime Glasses. Um, I haven't slept. I, I went to bed at three in the morning and by like six, I was already up. So I'm sorry for being emotional, but... This has been something that I've been working for um, or, or wanting to do for such a long time. And the fact that the episode is out there um, means the world to me. And I cannot wait to go on this journey with you and to read with you and discuss the cases with you. Um, so thank you so much for listening. I, I, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you. Okay, back to serious me. So this is where we're going to end today. On next week's episode, we will be going over the crime scene, the investigation, theories, and we will have our first guest on the show. Sarah Marshall from the You're Wrong About podcast is going to be joining us and sharing her knowledge on the satanic panic. Oh, also, I am going to be sharing February's book, um, 
um, next episode. So just giving you a heads up that you are going to know the next book just so you have time to read it. Um, I'll make sure to also offer um, some resources where you can get um, the books either for free with your uh, library card or um, with other websites that I use to get them for cheaper. But I will let all of you know all those details over on Instagram. So make sure that you're following at Crime Glasses Podcast. More than anything, I just hope that you enjoyed this episode and I cannot wait to join you this week. And now I have to go because this is getting too much. It's too much, girly. There's no reason for it. All right. Happy reading. Bye.